MNK Talk YA now presents Spin the Dawn, Part 2, from the Blood of Stars duology by Elizabeth Lynn. Talk YA. I'm Marissa Snyder. And I'm Kitty Bradford. And this is our Young Adult Fiction Podcast. And this week we finished the first book of a brand new series that we're reading. It is called Spin the Dawn by Elizabeth Lim. And this is the first book in the series. Yeah, and it's a duology, right? There's only one more? Yes. So I'm just going to throw it out there. As far as duologies go, I actually really appreciated how much happened in this book in the sense that I totally thought this quest with the three dresses was going to be split over both books. Like there is obviously stuff that's coming in the next book and we've laid Mm -hmm. some groundwork for that, but it did feel like we didn't just stop in the middle or something. No, absolutely. It felt like definitely the end of a first book and like there's going to be a whole different set of adventures happening in the next book. But that being said, there was a ton in this half. (laughs) Yeah, there was so much happening. And like, I almost wanted to slow down. I don't know. I just felt like there was, like you said, there was a lot going on and there was a lot of information to absorb. And I felt like some of this stuff was super interesting and I was like really curious about it. But I kind of, I wanted time to like digest it and see it fleshed out rather than just like mentioned in passing and then move on to the next bigger thing or whatever well especially I felt like the journey itself was a big thing and through the first trial like when she Mm. was collecting the son's laughter or whatever it was I did feel like I was in the desert I was adjusting to life on the road and like some of the challenges and it was all new to her and all this stuff but then the other two trials I like couldn't keep track of where we were or mm-hmm. like the environment like it's such an interesting world and I sort of feel like we rushed seeing two-thirds of it yes that's how I feel the world is so cool and I almost feel like this first book could have been two books because I remember in the first half I was kind of feeling rushed through the uh, Taylor trials like I wanted to see more of that and I just wanted to see the trials take a little bit more time and instead we kind of flew through it to get to the second half and to me I feel like stories are like deeper and richer and more complex when I can actually like spend a little bit of time with the characters and learn about them naturally rather than like trying to fit a ton of stuff in one book and then you kind of lose that intimacy with the characters Mm -hmm. and obviously Maya and Eden's relationship was like a big part of the second half and even that like they were on the road for so long I felt like we only saw like a very small fraction of their actual conversations yes and while I still like for the most part like buy into their relationship or whatever I sort of to your point like wish there had been more of this explanation and like Especially since uh, Maya wasn't super into magic and some of these legends and doesn't know much about like enchanters or the world, Mm -hmm. I feel like we could have learned a lot from seeing that relationship more on the journey and like having some more of those conversations. Because there was a lot of rules and like magic and creatures that weren't so standard that I was like, oh yeah, of course, ghosts touch you, you become a ghost. Like, I was like, wait, what? 
stop, rewind, yeah. explain that. But it was exciting. <laughs> I guess, yeah, it totally was. I was just thinking, should we go back and talk about where we left off? Yeah, so the first half was basically the end of the trials and setting up the journey. I guess they had technically left the palace, but they hadn't really actually started at all, right? Mm -hmm. Like they were just going into the desert at the beginning of this half. And as a reminder, the reason they're they're on this journey in the first place is Maya's been given this impossible quote unquote task of recreating the goddess uh, Amanda. Amanda, yeah. Um, Her dresses so there's one made from the laughter of the sun one made from the tears of the moon and one made from the blood of the stars (laughs) this reminds me of have you ever seen the musical into the woods i have yeah (laughs) where it's like the hair is yellow as corn the cloak is red as blood i forget the whole thing but like (laughs) it totally reminded me of that (laughs) the cow is white as milk (laughs) yeah no but you're right and but it is each of these trials could have been so interesting to kind of dive into more. And if anything, I felt like, we again, we spent the most time on the first one, the sun, where first we have like multiple steps to it. First, we had to find this spider that it's web or what, or what, what do you call it? Silk. Mm-hmm. It creates this material that is fire resistant and like super strong, but they're super venomous and they're really rare and they're only in this one part of the desert. And like she needs those to knit some gloves so that she can like reach into the sunshine and get the uh, laughter or whatever it was laughter right am I making that up yeah no Um, and like that like still was a little bit rushed but at least I sort of felt like there were multiple steps and I was sort of following like okay yeah of course you can't just go and grab the sun like you need special equipment and of course it's not just like something you buy at the store it's this like special spider or whatever and and whatnot (laughs) and I liked how it presented itself as you know, three things you need to collect, but also three trials. Yes. So one is of the body, the second one is of the mind, and the third is a trial of the soul. And they get like increasingly difficult as you go, um, which I-, I liked the way that that was kind of couched. And I also liked the fact that I-, I know I complained last week because I I get kind of annoyed whenever there's like words that sound pretty and flowery but don't really make any sense. So like. What, what is the laughter of the sun? Like, what are what is blood of stars? Like, that doesn't even make any sense. It sounds pretty, but it doesn't mean anything to me. Mm-hmm. And I did like how they kind of solved that by, you know, she, she was collecting sunlight, but she was actually collecting, like, the sunlight that was bouncing off a mirror. So I bought it the way it was presented. Yeah, it was interesting. Again, just a little fast in parts, but especially that first trial, I was like super buying into it. And that is where we start to see their relationship shift a little bit. Eden is still very much an enigma, but we're starting to understand a little bit more about the rules and magic of his life. Well, we started off so slowly, like he doesn't, he doesn't want to give up a lot right away. So first he's like, oh, by the way, I can't taste anything. Most enchanters can't. (laughs) And I don't feel heat or cold unless it's very extreme, (laughs) which was kind of a funny way to start and then as they spend more time together he starts to reveal more and more and I loved this magic system actually I was super into it what did you love about it so we learned that Eden has a cuff that he has to wear and we found out that he he is serving the emperor and the emperor wears an amulet and whenever an enchanter Mm -hmm. uh, comes into his power he has to take an oath 
and this cuff is a symbol of Eden's oath. And so they, they all have to swear an oath to a master, essentially, and it's to prevent them from becoming too strong. I do like that. And mm-hmm. like the reasoning behind it is that magic can be addicting and that it can corrupt whoever wields it. And so like in an attempt to kind of curb the power of enchanters, they all must serve a master. So even though they're like these super powerful people, they are essentially slaves. And I kind of thought that was a really clever way to introduce magic and to make Eden's character really more complex. It kind of reminded me of like the legend of a genie and a lamp. Mm -hmm. Like instead of going into a lamp, he turns into a hawk until someone finds his thing. And instead of three wishes, it's like a time frame or whatever. But something about like the way the magic and the rules and the master and the power and stuff worked reminded me of like the legend of the genie. Well, did you um, catch too, there was a a section where Maya was teasing him about how many names that he has. And he said his first name was Jin, which reminded me of the of a jinni from Arabian or Muslim mythology. I hadn't thought about that at the time, but you're right. Yeah. yeah. So I thought that was kind of a clever tie-in too. So once I kind of understood more about who he was, like the fact that he was a jinni makes sense to me. And I like the idea that you had to have some magic in you initially. Like, mm-hmm. I, I hope we even hear more of his backstory, like how he ended up on this enchanter path. Right. But he was born with you, it. You have some, you have some magic, but like... I don't know if he went through these same three trials. He definitely went through the third trial. Um, but he had to like go through all this training and make all these sacrifices. And a lot of people don't even make it through that part. And then at the end of it, you're a slave. <laughs> yeah, but I liked how he explains like his mindset when he went into it. And he said he was like really young and idealistic. And he thought he was going to be able to use magic to make the world a better place. And that's why the yep. sacrifice of becoming a slave was totally worth it to him. And, I mean, Mm -hmm. what's interesting, too, is once they pass their final trial, their reward is they get 1,000 years. Um, But it's 1,000 years that they can use magic and serve a master. And then at the end of those 1,000 years, they'll be set free. And then the magic leaves them. And they can't, like, they lose their tie to it. Mm -hmm. um, But then they're free to live out the rest of their lives as mortals. I love that. I thought that was a great backstory for Eden. I also loved when they stopped at the monastery for a night or so, and there was sort of this tension between magic and religion going into it, which mm-hmm. I was expecting based on other stories we've read and whatnot. But I loved how the like guy at the monastery was like, no, I've been around for a long time. Like, We appreciate the sacrifice they're making to basically protect mm-hmm. normal people. It's sort of like they take on the burden so the rest of us don't have to kind of thing or, or whatever. Yeah. Um, and I like that idea too that religion wasn't necessarily the enemy of the enchanter Mm -hmm. in this case um but the issue is that since eden is bound to the emperor the further and further away he gets he is kind of losing his ability to shift back into his human form and is spending more and more time in his spirit form which is a hawk Mm -hmm. and eventually if he goes too far if he leaves his master he would turn fully into a hawk and not be able to turn back again that's like the consequence of leaving your master it reminds me of that, like, be careful what you wish for thing, because the emperor, <laughs> he said certain rules, and he can't break the exact wording of those rules, but he, when he needs to, can kind of manipulate the situation a little bit. Yeah, and you called that. You said that last week, and then in this book, Eden was like, yeah, I have to obey the emperor, and the emperor's gotten, like, pretty good at paying attention to how he's wording things, because he, like, 
totally caught on that Eden's trying to find loopholes and everything he says. Oh my goodness. So I can't even remember what book it was. I think it was called something like Half Magic. Did you ever read a book where these like four kids could make wishes, but they'd only come half true? <laughs> no, but I love that idea. It was such a fun idea, but then I sort of felt like they like realized it pretty quick and then they would just wish for like twice as much blah 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 and I was like that isn't as fun as like trying to figure out how to like (laughs) but uh but yeah I yeah if you had a rebellious genie in your power you would want to be very intentional about what you said because as we know wishes can go a different Mm -hmm. direction especially if someone wildly wrong doesn't want to (laughs) listen entirely (laughs) but yeah and it does seem like to your point Eden wants to make the world a better place. He was working with the emperor's father to try to bring peace to the region. I think he does have some regrets about how that happened a little bit, but I sort of feel like even though Mm -hmm. he technically listens to the son, his loyalty isn't to the son, but maybe was to the father. Yeah, that's a good point because we learned that the the emperor now is is using Eden like we suspected, and he's using him to make himself appear stronger, more powerful, more charming, basically more of everything. And it's really been Eden's influence that has been enabling the emperor to win mm-hmm. this war so far. So yeah, I think it is tough because Eden is kind of a pawn in a way. Like I don't get the feeling that he believes super strongly in this war, but he's essentially forced to win it for the emperor. But I do think he wants peace in the region. I don't know if he agrees with war is the way to do it, but I think that's also... Yeah. Well, he also has a thing for Maya, but I think that's part of why he <laughs> went on this quest in the first place too is because he felt like if these dresses can get made, it will help ensure peace because mm-hmm. the wedding will go through and like... But yeah, and the Shinsen is still after him. And at, I don't know, halfway through our journey, someone realizes who he is and they start tracking him so we have a couple run-ins with the shinsen's mercenaries were the i had a question so were the wolves that attacked them in the beginning were those human and were they sent by the shinsen so at first i thought we were gonna find out that yeah it was like a targeted thing and like the same way he was a hawk some people could become wolves but i don't mm-hmm. actually think that because it never came back around but like i totally was expecting something like that when it happened but i yeah. sort of think maybe it was just wolves but i don't know where they came from in the desert and i don't <laughs> it seems we yeah i i was anticipating us finding out that they had been sent by someone but we never really got that so and maybe we still will but yeah we didn't even see like wolves later with the attacking army or anything so mm-hmm. i my guess right now is no they weren't but i also was expecting some kind of tie in there but so the first trial goes pretty well she is able to capture the sunlight in this nifty little walnut that eden gives her oh i love that she collects everything in walnuts <laughs> because they're like yeah. <laughs> good at magic or whatever and i also i love the connection between legends i've said this before with other stories but they'll like tell the story and be like yeah like i mean it was a little bit of a myth but this part is true or <laughs> like mm-hmm. and so the first trial was like the trial of the body to kind of see how much suffering she can endure and she she really almost gets burned to a crisp and gets really bad heat stroke and then the second trial was interesting because that was a trial of the mind and that was where she had to go to the mountains of the moon and climb the rainmaker's peak 
Mm-hmm. Um, and again, she had... I like how she has to like make an object in order to get to the final goal. So in the first one, she had to sew a pair of gloves. In the second trial, she has to make a pair of waterproof shoes to climb the mountain. And then those shoes were enchanted so that she wouldn't lose her footing as long right. as they didn't get wet. Right. But of course, it's a snowy, icy mountain in the dark. So... <laughs> <laughs> And that, that is such a mental challenge, like rock climbing or anything like that. I feel like, I mean, it's a physical challenge, sure. You have to be like in good shape and paying attention to your surroundings. And it's definitely a physical feat, but it is so mental. You're right. It is mental. It's like, because you just have to get past your fear. That's the thing. It's like the ability to conquer your fear and get out of your mind in order to make your body function the way it should. And it's, yeah, it's like a perseverance thing more than anything. So I did backpacking and I did some glacier work when I was in Alaska for three weeks. But um, it's the only time I've like cried from a physical Mm. thing, but it was really a mental thing because you're just like, you can't turn around. Like you're in the middle of the wilderness. My boots were leaking. So my feet were all like pruny and wet because we were walking through snow. I was carrying like 65% of my body weight and like, God, that sounds awful. It was kind of (laughs) terrible. I call it second degree fun. Like, I think I hated every single moment of it, but I look back and I'm like, that was the most amazing thing ever. But yeah, and so much of it is just like, yeah, the mental, like, okay, just keep going, like one more step at a time. Or if you read anyone Mm -hmm. who does like the Appalachian Trail or the, uh, like any of those long endurance hikes or like Mm -hmm. people who like bike across the country it's like so much of it is just mental because it's so long and you just have to keep going (laughs) like you can't turn back the one time in my life I actually really thought I was going to die was when I was climbing precipice trail in Acadia National Park in Maine and I was with like an ex-boyfriend and he like he had read that this was like a really cool trail to take and I was like okay sure that's fine let's do it it was it was like a 2,000 foot vertical climb and it was completely exposed. Like that was the most oh frightening goodness. part was it was like sheer cliff and then like a tiny little ledge that you had to like, like at one point I was like hugging the mountain like with my stomach to the rock oh along this little ledge and then to get up they had ladders but they were just like metal rungs that were like pounds into the rock. and But there wasn't, it was just like a sheer cliff with like metal rungs that you just had to climb. And there was just like a sheer drop beneath you. And we came across so many people who were just like bawling their eyes out because they were so afraid. And yeah. And at one point I was like, I can't do this. Like we have to turn back. And he was like, you want to go back down the way we came? Because like we heard that once you get up, there's an easier way down. So we like just had to keep going. But like I re- seriously thought I was going to die. And then we got back to our, our Airbnb and the woman was like, oh, what'd you do today? And I was like, well, we climbed precipice. And she like her face went white and she was like, people die on that trail every year. Oh my goodness. So so we get it. This was a good mental trial. Although it still felt like a physical trial, especially so once she got to the top, she had to like dive into a frozen lake and like swim to the bottom of it and she like definitely had hypothermia. <laughs> but I liked that she had to like find a pool of water that the moon was illuminated in and that like that's how she got the moonlight. Like I I liked the setup of it. And there was some, this one also was like a timing related, like it had to be during a full moon or it had something, right? There was like one or two days where they could do it. That was for the Blood of Stars, I thought. Okay. The Blood of Stars was like one day the whole year, right? Like the ninth day of the ninth month or something. Right. Because that was like the legend of 
the god of thieves one night a year would like lift a bridge to like reunite the sun and the moon and it was like the one day of year you could climb the bridge and get to the stars right but Mm. yes the third trial was oh she has to make a carpet right she has so she has to make a carpet this time and oh yeah fly to an island what happened with the carpet? Like, it kind of failed or, like, started to fall apart <laughs> mid-journey. Did she just... Was it, like, a craftsman error? Did she, like, rush the work? I don't know, because she used the scissors to make it, so I feel yeah. like... Or maybe just Eden's magic was, like, near empty, or... I don't know, but I was just like, whoa, what's going on? Yeah, they almost die flying to this island. And then I thought this was interesting, so there is... Uh, some very dark backstory about this island. Yeah. So they learn that no one could get to this island. Like it was rumored that it was covered in riches, but no one could physically get to it because every time they tried to sail to it, like storms would arise or, you know, their boats would capsize, something like that. Which totally made me think of that triplet queen story that we read, Three Dark Crowns. Remember how like you could only get there? If, oh yeah, and the fog like, would. Yeah. <laughs> Anyways, oh, go I on. I totally forgot about that. So eventually, one ship passes through, and the people on the island took it as a sign from the gods, like, "Oh wow, these people made it to our island." But unfortunately, the people used magic to reach the lake, and they killed all of the residents of the island, and the residents became ghosts and the island flooded and the men who attacked were cursed to become demons so their punishment was that they were rich with treasure but never able to leave the island and what we know about ghosts is that if you get touched by one you become one and i still only kind of understand demons i know they're (laughs) worse than ghosts and they like eat your soul i guess but they are tied to a place, so they have magic, kind of like an enchanter, but they're tied to a place instead of to a master. Right. What else do we know about demons? His old teacher used to be one. His old teacher became one. Or became one, yeah. And I thought that he was going to say that his old master became one because he was one of the people who attacked the original inhabitants of the lake, but that doesn't seem like that was the case. No, it sounded like he broke his promise to his master, right? He broke his oath. Which I'm still confused by. Like, I want to hear more of that story. Why did he break it? And is that why if Eden had come back, he would have been breaking his oath? So that's why he would have become a demon? Or I think so. But I thought that if you broke your oath, you just were stuck in your spirit form. Well, they said if you don't have a master. So like if they took the amulet and like threw it in the ocean, then he would be a hawk until someone found it until someone found it right yeah i was a little i was confused about the the demons too while i like the rules of the magic i still kind of want to know where it comes from like who regulates this stuff is it like from these gods (laughs) that we've seen or is it is it just like the power within the amulet and the cuff if they're far apart or i don't know i just i feel like i just have a little bit of a question about some of the rules see those are details i like don't even think about (laughs) i just take it for granted But yeah, so this is the trial of the soul. So they do make it to the island with a little bit of a rough magic carpet ride. Not quite as magical as Aladdin and Jasmine in the Mm -hmm. Disney version. And at this point, they are solidly a couple. Oh, yeah. Can we talk about that? Yeah. So when did they... It was after the second trial that they finally admitted their feelings, right? They had both been kind of Mm -hmm. skirting around it and like doing that thing that always happens when it's like, I like you, but... 
for your own sake, I don't like you. And the other person's like, wait, what? I don't understand. And then they get mad. And like, we kind of like played that dance for a little bit. But going into the third trial, they had both finally admitted and accepted that they had strong feelings for each other and are acting like a couple. He asks to court her, which is super sweet. Oh, yeah. And he gives her flowers. And he's like, if you accept them, that means you accept me courting you. (laughs) And I love that we, we did have time just to kind of see them be together as a couple. Which I thought was nice because so many in so many books, like you said, there's this dance that happens, uh, like the will they, won't they dance. And then they never end up together until usually like the final part of the book. That's like the resolution, like, oh, and now we're mm-hmm. together. And I liked that it happened earlier because we actually got to see them like being really sweet and loving in the desert together and like having some really nice moments. And um, even like when they ran into those travelers like they assumed they were husband and wife and they kind of got to play act that for a little bit although that was still when they were the will they won't they which was also funny because she was like (laughs) you think i'm your wife or whatever and then he's like go along with it and like is teasing her and so yeah i agree though they did have that moment of happiness where we do like root for them and get them as a couple right now Mm -hmm. and I'm really glad that we didn't linger too long on Eden being like, no, you shouldn't be with me because I'm bound and it's going to be a thousand years and I won't age, but you will. And that can be tiresome. So I'm glad like... We addressed it and we moved on. Yep. Yeah, exactly. And I, d- I liked how he was going to tell her one name every day or whatever. I sort of yeah. wish we had heard more of those stories, but I do love hearing his backstory and like different names he's had because he had a rough childhood from the little bit we do know he was like the seventh or eighth son of this guy who his mom died giving birth to him so that his father like blamed him for that and like never gave him a real name he just called him boy in some other language Mm -hmm. and took him to a monastery and left him there and the monastery was very strict and like had more of a punishing god than like a you know love each other and be nice yeah And, I mean, his father didn't even warn him that he was abandoning him. He just, he said, like, I'm taking you to school today. And then, like, left him at this monastery. And then soldiers came to the monastery and, like, recruited him at age 13 or something to be a soldier. (gasps) Right. I think it was, like, 11, actually. Or 11. Yeah, Yeah, it was really young. 13 even sounds young. And 11 is way younger. Oh, my goodness. They were like, yeah, sure, you can go fight. I actually really wanted to see Eden's backstory because... I found that like so much more fascinating than the trials. Like the trials were fine, but it was kind of predictable. And like the idea of like having to pass a trial is like, you know, kind of tropey. I think I think the author did it well, but mm-hmm. Eden's story is so much more interesting and creative. And it makes sense if they're falling in love that he's revealing himself to her. So yeah, I liked all the parts where we saw that, but I definitely want more. I want to see um, like a prequel where Eden has to pass these tests to become an enchanter where he has to like drink from the well that contains the blood of stars like what did he see when she saw the ghost of her family because he said it's different for everyone and I also want to know because they say to be an enchanter you have to have magic originally like I want to know how young he was or like when he figured it out or like I mean I know he eventually found a teacher but how did that happen yeah I just he's I'm fascinated by him as well and he's lived all these lives and seen so much yeah So yes, when Maya goes to the Thieves Tower, she sees some illusions, I would call them. So she sees her father's old shop and her brother's and she sees her mom cooking. And the sight of her old family is kind of like enough to make her forget her mission and forget Eden. And Sendo, one of her brothers, is trying to get her to stay. Okay, can I say one thing about this? 
So going into it, she knew that she couldn't touch the ghosts. And to be fair, I guess Eden didn't know exactly what trial she was going to face, but I feel like he could have given her a little more warning about like how hard it would be and that everything you saw wasn't (laughs) going to be real. But I feel like this happens in books. You like see hallucinations, but everyone knows they're coming. And I'm sort of like, if you know you're hallucinating, wouldn't you not trust it as much? Like, I don't know. I just, I almost feel like... You I like, buy don't it. Yeah. believe it if you know something's gonna happen. But I know it happens all the time, so I have no idea what it's really like. But I'm almost like, if you know not to trust things, why are you so <laughs> trusting of these things that you know are impossible? Maybe because you, you don't think they're as real as they will be. Like, it's so real yeah. that you can't even imagine it's an illusion. And it did seem, it wasn't just like she kept getting distracted. Like, she couldn't remember, like, it really was, her mind was like, this feels weird, but I don't know why. It wasn't like, oh, you're supposed to be dead. I'm so glad to see you. I guess that's the thing, yeah. She knew her brothers were dead. But, like, there, there's definitely more magic going on here because she also, like, forgets her mission and forgets Eden. Like, she's definitely enchanted in some way. It's not just, like, her own will being like, oh, you look like my dead brother. You must be my dead brother, you know? Or like, yeah, I know you're not real, but I just, it's happier to be here, so I want to hang out with you. But I still feel like Eden could have warned her better. Agreed. But again, I guess it's different for everybody, and who knows what his trial was like, but... But he could have said more than just, don't touch the ghosts. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> They're going to be calling for you, don't touch them. Yeah. Um, the, the thing dressed as Sendo turns into a wolf demon wearing an amulet. Oh, I forgot it was a wolf demon. Yeah, that's why I was confused about the wolves at the beginning. Yeah. That's a good point. I had forgotten. Okay. And she cuts off his amulet. And this is where we see the demons being kind of tricky because he's like, give me back my amulet. And she's like, no. And he was like, okay, well, if you give it back to me, I'll break Eden's oath for him. And she like almost gives in. And then she's like, no, I don't trust you. And he's like, Mm -hmm. oh, well, you know, it's too bad because death would have been easier on him. So like he was going to break the oath by killing him. And so that's like her first notice that she can't really trust him. Yeah. But there were, I just still had a lot of questions. And I guess I know she didn't know much about demons going into this. Right. But we then later find out like the amulet didn't actually matter, even though he was trying to get it back. It was just like, he, he was just trying to distract her because he ultimately does touch her. Yeah. And he takes like a piece of her soul and it means that now he can follow her. Mm-hmm. And also she... What happened with the walnut? Something happened with the walnut, so she couldn't collect... She dropped the walnut. Okay. She dropped the one thing she needed to hold on to. So she couldn't collect the blood of the stars, and so the demon was like, hey, I'll give you this vial if you give me back my amulet. And she agrees, and I think that's when he is able to, like, attack her. And maybe that really is the end of it, because at this point, at the end of this book, she has already woven the blood of the stars into the dress. But I was sort of expecting that to come back around again, where, like, because she took the vial or something about the vial Mm -hmm. instead of the walnut. I don't know. Maybe it still will. Yeah, I'm curious. Because, again, we can't trust a demon from the little bit we know. (laughs) No, and then, like... When they're leaving the island, he comes back. So, like, he he did have a piece of her soul, and he did follow her, and he kind of captures her, and and then Eden comes to rescue her. Mm -hmm. And the demon, Bandar, he's like, okay, I'll let her go if Eden takes my place as a guardian. Which is the only way he can leave the island is if a different demon comes, basically. Right, right. He's freed from being the demon of the island if someone else takes his place. Exactly. So... This is the other thing that bothered me, though. Mm -hmm. 
Okay, I get that Maya loves Eden, but when she was, like, feverish and couldn't sit on the horse and he's like, run away, I'll be fine, and she comes back, but she's, like, dying, and she comes back and, like, distracts him and, like, slows them down, and I get that she loves him, but it would be different if she, like, had a really useful skill, like, she came closer and had bows and arrows. Well, she did. She had the magic scissors, remember? She, like, wove that thicket that, like, protected them from the arrows. The first time, but the second time when she was di- when she like had the demon fever or whatever, that time I and even in the book it said like she logically knew she shouldn't, but she did it anyways. <laughs> and I, that time I was just like, you shouldn't be there. <laughs> this was the wrong move. Yeah. Well, I didn't like how after she gets caught and after Eden makes the deal with his old teacher. He was, like, very cavalier about the fact that, like, he was going to go back to the island and just be a demon for the rest of his life because they were talking about, you know, having a life together and how he was going to meet her dad and how she was going to learn all of his names. And then the next minute he was like, don't worry, you'll meet someone else. You'll forget about me. I can make you forget about me. Like, he was just very casual about that. And she was rightly not happy with him. Yeah, this is another point where I felt like there just should have been a little more conversation because he didn't even, I don't think he explained well enough to her what it meant or even how he, like, I still don't understand how he can. Like, he's just going to walk away from his oath and do this, but he's not going to be a hawk this time because this time he'll be a demon. I don't know. (laughs) I still, I mean, I like mostly get it, but I, there's parts of me that are like, wait, something about this could have been explained better. And maybe we'll see that more because, I mean, we end the book with them arriving at the autumn palace uh like you said she finishes making these dresses she presents them to lady sarnai and then maya puts on one of the dresses she puts on the last dress the one made of the blood of stars and she goes to amana's altar to pray wait before this we learn that yes the thief was granted a wish or whatever but we also learned that the tailor who made the dresses was given magic scissors so that is likely her familial origin was the original tailor who made the dresses themselves that's huge yeah so someone in her family already made amana's dresses and as a reward was given these scissors that you know i hate (laughs) (laughs) but we're definitely gonna get that backstory because I think that explains why Maya has her own magic and again I think it's interesting that her grandmother used them but her dad didn't and even though master tailors are men in this world I sort of think maybe the magic can only be used by women in the line or something Hmm. like that so maybe not but but that's what I think right now (laughs) I like that idea and then so after she makes the dresses Amana actually the goddess grants her a wish too she grants Maya a wish and she wishes that the emperor would free Eden from his oath. Which again, I'm like kind of confused. I don't think she asked enough questions or I, I still don't understand like how you can be free because we also learned when she was working with the demon that he could be killed. Like this is like a be careful what you wish for thing in my mind a little bit where... He could have killed him. The emperor could have killed Eden to free him from the oath. Yeah. But he wouldn't because he needs him to win this war. I know, but what if... I don't know. I just felt like she should have asked more questions or been more intentional about... I don't know. I just got nervous that she was, like, freeing him from his oath. But, like, what if something bad happened as a result of that? And I'm still not convinced that it won't. Yeah. I mean, if I ever had to make a wish, it would be, like, five pages long in one very enormous run-on sentence because I would have to make sure I get everything in there that I need. I am having a lawyer draft up that <laughs> wish for me. <laughs> um, so she uses the, the dresses 
The dress like comes alive and somehow breaks the cuff on Eden's arm. And the issue though yeah. is so he so Eden's free from his oath, and that means that he somehow can't fill his promise to Bander. I guess because he doesn't have magic anymore. Is he just like a normal guy now because his oath is broken, so he's not an enchanter, so his magic goes away? Like, because he doesn't have the oath, he doesn't have the power? Isn't that what happens when your time is up? Yeah. Eden leaves to find another source of magic because his his will fade without the oath, and he wants to make sure he can still protect Maya from the Emperor. But now the issue is the demon is probably going to come after Maya instead. So he wants Maya now to take his place on the island. And he's more intrigued by her because he realizes she does have some magic totally. in yeah. herself. But so did Eden. <laughs> I know. That's where I'm like, why did, did, like, even if Eden wasn't as great as he was, he still feels like a viable option. He still was magical. But I guess he's not like directly descendant from Amana's dressmakers or whatever. Maybe that's like bigger and better. Maybe. But anyways, yeah. So he comes back and she's starting to like, not fear and turn cold and it's just going to get worse and worse until she's a full demon she's turning into a demon and then the last scene we get is with maya she goes back to visit her father and keaton one more time on the magic carpet and she gives them the walnut venom that eden she doesn't actually do it i thought she put it in their wine she was going to and then she thought about it and decided not to and put it like in a plant Okay, I totally missed that, but I believe you. <laughs> well, okay, here, I actually was kind of confused because, <laughs> wait, let me find this part. Because I thought the walnut poison would make them happy, but would make them forget. So I was like, oh, they're going to forget her if, if they take it, right? Yeah. Oh, no, you're right, because there was a part where she was like, just sleep and be happy, not like sleep and forget about me. But I could have sworn she put it in their wine. <laughs> Reaching into my pocket, I retrieved the walnut. I cracked it open like an egg, a golden liquid, thick as honey, glistened before me in the scent of ginger, blah, blah, blah. But then she said, I started to empty its contents into the teapot, but at the last moment I wavered. I'd witnessed enough of Eden's enchantment to have faith in it, and yet magic had Mm. never been what made Baba call me the strong one. It had changed me, but it had never made me stronger or happier. How could it for Baba and Keaton? But I'm still a little bit confused because she started to empty its contents, so, so I don't know, like, was there any in there or just? No, I think there, I think you're right, there wasn't, but I totally read that wrong. Oh, semantics. Okay. So the second book is really not what I expected it would be. So I'm, I'm thinking the second half, we're going to learn more about Eden's backstory. We're going to figure out more about this demon Bandar guy. Um, Maya might turn into a demon. Wait, one last thing. Yeah. Maya is officially publicly a woman again. True. So the emperor has, like... She's still Master Taylor. He's she's not under threat of being discovered as a woman. So everyone knows she's a female, and she's still still Master Taylor. They're suddenly cool with it, which is ridiculous because the first time they were gonna execute her for it, and this time they're like, okay, whatever. And it was even like, oh, someone saw you wearing the dress yesterday. Just put it on again. Right. <laughs> it was such. A, it was kind of a weird scene. <laughs> it was. It was just weird that they reacted so poorly the first time, and the second time didn't seem to care at all yeah i mean i guess technically if the emperor says it's fine then it's fine but the emperor didn't say it was fine the first time the first time he was being deceived so he was angry (sighs) i don't know i i agree it was kind of confusing but yeah so second book we're gonna need to somehow stop her from becoming a demon bring peace to the nation find a way that they can go hide off 
together without being bothered by the Emperor, the Shunsen, or this other demon, and live happily ever after. Do we think Eden's going to find a second source of magic? I think so, or he's going to find some way to be useful again. Like, I don't know if it'll necessarily be... Like, I don't think he'll be an enchanter again, but I think he'll find... Mm. Maybe it's, like, his own version of scissors or, like, some kind of tool. I don't know. What do you think? I think they would be better off without it, personally. (laughs) They would be in the long run, but I don't know about the short run. (laughs) Yeah, I guess so. They need to fix their problems before they can relax and live their happily married life. I just hope we get more of Eden's backstory. That's all I really want. And I do hope, I mean, I'm not super invested right now, but I have enough curiosity. I want to see the Shinsen. I want to see how his daughter, like I want her to rebel or do something useful. She's still mm-hmm. like a character I'm intrigued by, but don't know enough about. Um, and we know she doesn't want to marry the emperor. We know she has this lover and we know she's mad at her dad, but also doesn't fully know what's going on between the emperor and her dad and i don't know i want her to be a bigger character in the next book maybe even an ally well now that um eden's gone the emperor is going to be all weak and worthless again so i'm wondering how that will affect things if that will make lady star and i you know rise to the challenge yes so we talked for almost an hour about the book we did not get to any research at all (laughs) did you have any this week I I mean, mine wasn't that interesting. So we learned about the fact that Maya could make a wish because she built these dresses or whatever. And I was kind of looking into, we have a lot of superstitions about wishes, whether it's like blowing out birthday candles or wishing on a shooting mm. star or whatever. Um, and I was just kind of looking into where some of those superstitions came from. Oh. Yeah, let's see. So birthday candles, which do people even do that now that COVID's a thing? I don't think so, but... I guess the ancient Greeks used to put candles on cakes and bring like baked goods to Artemis, who's the goddess of the moon and the hunt as offerings. And they would put candles on them to signify the moon because she was the goddess of the moon. Um, And it was thought that the candle smoke would help like carry the prayers to the gods. And that's why we think that that might be the origin of wishing while blowing out candles. Although supposedly the first birthday cake came from Germany in the Middle Ages and young children would, I guess, like it's called Kinderfest, celebrate their birthdays with treats and candles were placed on the cake, one for each year of life and an extra candle for the coming year to represent the light of life. And of course, the superstition is you blow out the candles, but you don't tell anyone what your wish is or it won't come true. I love that story with the cake in ancient Greece. Yeah, I guess I knew like there was something about smoke Mm Because I think of smoke with, like, ancient god ritual stuff. But I hadn't realized that they actually put them on, like, baked goods back then. (laughs) I love that. Um, Ladybugs are supposed to be good luck. And if one lands on you, it grants you a wish. That's, like, a farmer superstition. Uh, So they... Ladybugs are named for the Virgin Mary, who was often portrayed in a red cloak during medieval times. So the beetles... Whoa. Redness represents her cloak, and the black spots supposedly represent her sorrow. And they have been a symbol of a good harvest for a long time, probably because when they're around, they eat bad pests that destroy crops. So farmers would pray to the Virgin Mary to protect their crops, and if ladybugs appeared, then their crop would be safe, and it seemed like a miracle. Oh, I like that. So if they prayed to the Virgin Mary and then ladybugs came, that was thought to be your wish being granted. Oh, I like that. Uh, dandelions, 
back in like the 1800s, girls would use them for romantic purposes. It was thought if you blew on a dandelion and all the seeds left, then the person you loved also had feelings for you. But if any seeds remained, that either meant that they were like having reservations or maybe they didn't have any feelings at all. So children were supposed to think about the person that they like had a crush on or whatever and blow on the flowers. But eventually that tradition kind of became just a wishing thing. Like probably when we were little, we blew on them and made a wish or whatever. I had never heard of that, but that's kind of, that's like, he loves me, he loves me not kind of thing. Like with petals. Yeah. Cool. There's, I mean, it's just interesting to think about all the different things we wish on too. Like lucky pennies, wishing wells, wishbones, shooting stars, eyelashes. (laughs) What's the eyelash one? Wishing on eyelashes was common folklore in the mid-19th century. A fallen eyelash is placed on the back of the hand before the wisher throws it over their shoulder. Hmm. If the eyelash gets stuck, the wish does not come true. (laughs) A Cornish schoolgirl version says that you place the eyelash on the tip of your nose, and if you blow it off, you'll get your wish. Hmm. I never heard that. (laughs) Anyways, there's a lot of ways to make wishes besides building three dresses from the gods. (laughs) Yeah, lots easier ways. (laughs) But maybe less powerful. <laughs> um, so my research was kind of based on the magic dresses a little bit. I wanted to research the most expensive dresses in the world. Ooh. So the dress by Victor Elderstein that was worn by Princess Diana at President Reagan's White House dinner in 1985. It's like a very iconic black velvet dress. It sold for $362,000. Whoa. Yeah. Amal Clooney's wedding dress, that really pretty Oscar de la Renta off the shoulder dress, that was embroidered with French lace and pearls, and that sold for $380,000. I, like, can't imagine spending that amount of money on anything. <laughs> yeah, and I mean, for, like, for, for celebrities and stuff, like, they don't pay for it, obviously, but... True. I mean, so Kate Middleton's very famous wedding dress, which we know was made by Sarah Burton for Alexander McQueen, that had a 2.7 meter train, and it was reportedly $400,000. $400,000? I can't imagine wearing a dress that expensive. I would, first of all... A thousand percent trip, spill food on it, and ruin it in seven other ways. But I also, can you imagine like making, like that's so cool to make something worth that much. I don't know. Like it's just like crazy to think about. Yeah. And I mean, two of these on here were not dresses that were expensive because of the material. They were expensive because of how like iconic they were. So um, Audrey Hepburn's little black dress from Breakfast at Tiffany's. Mm -hmm. So that sold for $900,000. It was made by Givenchy, but it wasn't because it was a very expensive dress in and of itself. It was just like, it was so famous. So like after she wore it, they sold it for that. Yeah. And then what do you do with it? Just like hang it in your house and you're like, hey, guess what? This is Audrey's. (laughs) I don't know who collects that. But um, the other one was the ivory pleated dress that Marilyn Monroe wears in that famous photo where, yep, her, where her dress is blowing up over the subway. Yeah. So that was uh, from the movie The Seven Year Itch. And the dress was made by William Trevelli and it sold for $5.6 million at a Beverly Hills auction in 2011. Wow. And that also just makes you think like, again, sometimes when I hear about like 
people who have so much money that like this is what they do is they like buy a dress from a famous movie just to have or and I mean maybe it's like also for a charity or something but it's just like crazy that people are like yeah you know I think I'll spend x amount of dollars and like just to say I have Marilyn Monroe's dress from that picture and again how often does that even come up in conversation and if you're that wealthy you probably have like 17 other things that are equally cool I don't know sure um the most expensive wedding gown in the world was made by an Egyptian designer, Hani El-Bahari, and this dress was embroidered with hundreds of diamonds, and it was originally mm. debuted at his uh, fashion show in Cairo on January 23rd, 2019, and then it, it, then it was shown again at Paris Hot Couture Week. So it has a very long train, seven meter train it took 800 hours of work and it was ordered by the daughter of a very rich egyptian family and it is worth 15 million dollars wow and then the world's most expensive dress in the world it's so cool it has a name so the dress is called the nightingale of kuala Lumpur, and the nightingale was designed by a malaysian fashion designer fazali abdullah and it's red chiffon, and it is it has a six meter train. It is covered with seven hundred and fifty one diamonds and crystals. Okay. Together, the diamonds are um, one thousand one hundred carats. It also includes a seventy carat teardrop diamonds, and it was worn by a former Malaysian beauty queen and actress uh, who was like given the honor to wear the gown. It is worth thirty million dollars. Wow. One dress. That is crazy. And it's ugly as sin. <laughs> I was going to ask if it was like beautiful or not. It's so ugly. I think it's so ugly. And I think the, the wedding dress that um, the Egyptian designer designed to was really ugly as well. Well, I actually, I feel like I don't necessarily want to be covered in hundreds of diamonds. Like, yes, I, that's never been an option for me anyway. <laughs> so maybe I'd feel differently in different circumstances. But I sort of feel like jewelry should just like, or, you know, diamonds and like jewels should be like, kind of sparse and special yeah not like super sparse but like I agree I don't know even like those big necklaces that have like tons of jewels I don't like those as much as like a really pretty solitaire yeah yeah I'm with you and just like the style of the dresses is kind of they're I don't know they don't look flattering this really just sounds like me being very bitter about not getting to wear a 30 million dollar dress but I truly don't like the design I also like like clothes that flow I think and I just feel like with that many diamonds it would be be so heavy and hang weird possibly right I don't know I couldn't pull it off that's for sure yeah I mean again probably never gonna be an option but (laughs) I don't want it anyways I'm just kidding (laughs) I wouldn't wear it if you paid me (laughs) yeah so that was my research this week that's awesome It, it would be cool to see these dresses I as much as that wasn't like the best scene necessarily from an action standpoint i would love to see her in the third one um just Mm -hmm. because i Mm -hmm. like it sounds beautiful yeah i wish that there was a fan who was really good at sewing who could recreate these dresses in real life yes or you can design them on a piece of paper that would be a lot cheaper (laughs) but i would i wish someone could like show me an image of the gowns yeah uh do we want to talk about the next book yes so the next book we're going to read is called Unravel the Dusk. It is the second book in this series, and I will read a, a brief synopsis. Maya Tamarin's journey to sew the dresses of the sun, the moon, and the stars has taken a grievous toll. She returns to a kingdom on the brink of war. 
The boy she loves is gone, and she is forced to don the dress of the sun and assume the place of the emperor's bride-to-be to keep the peace? Wait, what? <laughs> that went a different direction than I expected. Also, let's not call Eden a boy because he's 500 years old. Thanks. Okay, but the war raging around Maya is nothing compared to the battle within. Ever since she was touched by the demon bounder, she has been changing, glancing in the mirror to see her own eyes glowing red, losing control of her magic, her body, her mind. It's only a matter of time before Maya loses herself completely, but she will stop at nothing to find Eden, protect her family, and bring lasting peace to her country. Hmm. I really don't like this, having to assume the place of the Emperor's bro- What happens to Lady Sarnai? I have no idea. Oh, okay. I want to start reading. <laughs> okay, let's read up to chapter 20 for next week. Okay, sounds good to me. Do you have a joke for me? Oh, yes, I do. I'm always afraid to, like, start telling that joke until I've double-checked because <laughs> I tend to give the punchline on accident. Okay, it's not even that funny, but James and I both laughed about it earlier. How can a room full of married people be empty? Hmm. I don't know. There's not a single person there. Oh, that's good. That's a good riddle. <laughs> it's kind of dumb. <laughs> I like it. Okay, well, if you guys want to get in touch with us, you can email us at mnktalkya at gmail.com. We're also on Facebook and Instagram at mnktalkya. And we are going to start reading this book immediately because I can't wait. <laughs> Agreed. Bye, bookworms. Go get a library card. M&K Talk YA is produced and edited by Marissa Snyder and Katie Bradford. Original music composition by Timothy Milkey. Logo design by Marissa Snyder. For updates and extras, visit mnktalkya.com or follow us on Instagram and Facebook. And if you haven't already, please rate, review, and subscribe on iTunes. We would like to thank James Tobias, Chad Snyder, Meredith Kelfie, and Michael Howard for all of their support. Thanks for listening, and see you next time.